This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Cory Booker is a senator from New Jersey and a candidate for president of the United States. And that's all I got to say. It's Senator Cory Booker on Torre Show. What's your superpower? Because you have been a sort of superstar at life for as long as I've been aware of the name Cory Booker, which was before you were mayor, before you ran for mayor. I was hearing about this guy, Cory Booker, who's coming and he's big and he's on point with everything. And what are you doing? I, I don't know. <laughs> what is that? If you were hearing about me before I was mayor, then you were in the time of public enemy and you could, I could just say, don't believe the hype. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I was the superpower that was evidenced for me growing up, which was, I'm not exaggerating, I think it's actually a superpower, Under, underrated is kindness. Hmm. Like, I just, I just watched two parents who were really good people and would see people that every that folks walk past all the time. I, one of my favorite quotes by a humorist, Dave Barry has this quote that every, he goes, uh, uh, someone who is nice to you but not nice to the waiter is not a nice person. Mm. But you and I both know, because I know you have this kindness in you as well, that when you are kind to people, incredible things happen that you don't realize. Sure. One, of my, one of my favorite stories, and I'll tell you the quicker version, but you know, going to school at Stanford, I'd fly back and forth across the country, and I still remember getting on this plane as a Stanford student and being, it was torturous when you're like six foot three football player, tight end, just like coach was, you know, always like my knees were going to be banged up. And, yeah. But I get on this plane and I have two seats open next to me. The rest of the plane is full. And just before the door closes, this woman walks in with a screaming baby and a little boy. And everybody on that plane knows where they're sitting because they're the only three bodies, two seats. And... I think that we all don't realize we have a choice that we make every moment of our lives, which is to accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them. And so something evolved thought for our teenage, you know, college student at that point hit me, which was this is either going to be the worst flight of my life or I can try to make it the best. And so I just leaned in and started talking to her and the crying baby. And as soon as I got out of my own drama, I realized, oh, my gosh. This woman has a crying baby, and the whole plane is looking at her like she's evil, as if she did something outside right, and right. told her baby to cry purposefully. Right, right. right and right. and and so we just started having a good time. Like I still remember the movie. Think about this: how purposeful this moment was for me. That I remember that was the movie was Glory with wow. Denzel Washington, wow. and she's like, "I haven't seen a movie in so long," and I'm like, 
watch this movie. Your son and I, we're going to play games. We played Hangman. I killed him with all my best dad jokes that I had even back then. Like, you kill, oh, I thought you said I killed him in Hangman. Oh, I, <laughs> I am a very competitive man. <laughs> and by the time we landed, it was the quickest flight I ever had cross country. We said we would keep in touch. You know, we exchanged addresses back then, no email, and didn't. And 5, 10, 15 years later, I'm running for mayor of the city of Newark, and I'm getting, like, thumped. And on one of my toughest, most frustrating days, I get this letter in the mail saying to me, you may not remember me, but um, but I, you were on this flight, first time I flew with my kids, telling me what the kindness then meant to her. And then she tells me, by the way, we my family owns a big factory in Newark, and our, we have we have tons of employees. She ended up becoming a big part of my campaign. That kid that I tortured with my jokes became one of our best volunteers. Her, her workers that she introduced me to started taking me to their churches, introducing me. It was just an amazing full circle that kindness is energy. There's a Stanford professor that actually studies this, that you just doing one kind act, witnessed by someone, it will affect people three degrees of separation for you. It is vir- they, She created a way to measuring it. It's a virtuous thing. And so in my life, you know, I just think that that is a superpower that we underrelate. That just a kind word to somebody at the right time can make a difference that you don't even realize. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if I, I don't have any superpowers. I'm, I'm really far more ordinary than the hype, as you just said. But um, I've just tried to go out of my way. And for me, it's a, it's a matter of my faith, which is this idea of radical love, um, trying to do for people. And when you have parents like you and I probably had as two black guys who had parents that <laughs> would not let me forget of the struggle, mm. you know, parents that were involved in the civil rights movement, that my, I, I was raised up thinking like I didn't, the privileges that I enjoy were not earned. They were paid for. Right. As my grandparents would say, by the blood, I mean, sweat, and tears of your ancestors. I definitely grew up thinking, uh, you know, I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. I have a responsibility to the people who marched, who died, who protested, who were enslaved their whole yes. lives. Like you can, I remember being in college and thinking, you know, if I was white, you know, and I didn't feel that responsibility to the past, it'd be cool to, like, be in the CIA. Yeah, but yeah. I can't. I have a responsibility to people who came before me. I wouldn't be here without them, so I have to do something. And perhaps my, I think my journey in media has been something of, you know, being helpful to black people in some way. Um, but, you know, that sense of responsibility that you talk about, I definitely felt. And you, have that has powered your life. It is the... I said my faith earlier, but that is an integral part of what has motivated my life decisions. And very, you know, I am here because a group of people fought for my housing rights. Like I grew up in the town I grew up in, in Harrington Park. There was a group of activists when my parents were getting denied. Real estate agents were lying to them right. and telling them this house is sold. It was called real estate steering at the time. Right. And so they set up this sting operation where they would send white couples right behind my parents. And so it, it, I mean, this was a story, I ended up making a chapter in my book because it involved my, at one point, my father's lawyer being punched in the face and dog being, I mean, just like dog being signaled on my dad, like craziness. But I'm a baby when that happened. It was 50 years ago this summer that it happened. And so imagine growing up with parents that could literally look you in the eye. My dad would be like, boy, people had to fight to even get you a chance to yeah. be in the school you're going to. So you're going to get your ass out of bed yeah. and go to school and make the best out of yourself. And so coming out of law school, when I'm done, 
And I always joke that my dad was like not that impressed. He was proud of his son, but you know, I go to Stanford, Oxford, Yale. He's like, boy, you got more degrees the month of July, but you ain't hot. <laughs> Life ain't about the degrees you get. It's about the service you, you give. Like, what yeah. are you going to do with all this privilege? And so the first job I had coming out of law school was a tenant's rights lawyer. People fought for my housing rights. I was going to go and fight for other people's. And so my, my life, and I love that you said this because, you know, we grew up reading, Ball, we reading Du Bois and Talented Tenth and the obligations yeah. uh, uh, of, that, that you get from getting the privileges that you know are denied to, you know, you and I are sitting here as black men who, you know, I, I know the data. I mean, the leading cause of death for us, murder, 54 50, oh, between 50 and 60% of the homicides in America are people look a lot like us, black mm-hmm, men. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so y- y- you feel this like sense of like, I can't rest. I got to keep working. I got to keep pushing until we can make this society be what it is. And by the way, even if we never get there, at least we can try to pay, that, pay back what was given to us. Yeah. This sense of being kind and directly serving people is so much of your reputation. You're the guy who shoveled your constituents' driveway and rescued a specific person from a fire, not just talking about it, not just policy, but actually getting your hands dirty and doing it. I mean, this comes from your parents' example, or where does this, this come from? Both. Look, my my parents were, again, like, you know this, the black culture, like you show up for people, you're there for people, you know, and then and then an activist culture. I mean, my mom did sit-ins. My mom put herself in danger for the larger cause. And this idea of physical safety is something that I think we take it, we take for granted that there's lots of people in this country. I still remember a conversation I had my freshman year in college uh, with a guy who was waking me up just to heterosexual privilege. He's like, I can't hold my boyfriend's hand in places without feeling yep. that I could be beaten for that. Yep. And, and, and so, you know, I, I just made a decision for my life. Like, people were like, why are you living in the neighborhood you're living in? So for the last, you know, t- basically my entire professional career, I made a decision to live in very, well, people would, Yep. Ask that question, neighborhoods. But my response often to people is, there are thousands of people who live in my neighborhood. And and if you're worried about me, let's be worried about everybody that lives in neighborhoods like this and do something about it, as opposed to just saying, well, I'm going to move out. And I, I, I used to say this when I first started my political career. If we had every person who was elected to represent some place had to, by being elected, live in the toughest parts of the area they represent, there'd be a lot more moral urgency mm. to deal with the problems. But we've created this country where it's so easy not to see the suffering of people right. who may be your neighbor. There are people who live right next to somebody or somebody in their family right now that is putting aside a prescription, a life-saving prescription drug because they can't afford it. Yeah. Well, if that was you, and, and, and I get kind of, I'm one of these folks that, you know, I get frustrated sometimes where somebody says, well, I now support gay marriage because my son came out and was gay. Well, is your empathy that uh, strained <laughs> that you can't, that you need somebody in your family to be affected by issue X or issue Y before you sort right. of get it? Now, And I say that, again, I should point fingers at myself, my dad going through Parkinson's and Parkinson's dementia sure. literally drove me to pushing legislation for caregivers and people that are taking care of family members like that. But... I say all the time that we need in this country a revival of civic grace, more courageous empathy for one another, because I think that that would help us to solve more of this nation's problems. Because people don't understand that mass incarceration doesn't just affect 
the disproportionate African Americans are there. It affects us all. I mean, between the time I was in law school, the time I was in, um, in, in the mayor of the city of Newark, we were building a new prisoner jail every 10 days while the rest of our infrastructure crumbled. You, you can't incarcerate human beings and deny them uh, human rights without it somehow affecting you as well. The same thing with mentally ill homeless, denying them housing. I now know the data. It's actually far more expensive to society to have somebody mentally ill and homeless that we walk or, or, or walk by, but we don't know that's um, quite literally costing us taxpayer dollars because yeah. they end up in hospitals or emergency rooms or, or our jails. This penchant to really get your hands dirty in this way, the 10-day hunger strike as well, um, you once you lived on two dollars. Was it two fifty a day for like a, a week or two? Yeah, oh, I, it was hard. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard. Some people have been cynical about these things, right? And looked at them like, oh, these are political stunts, right? Like, what, what do you say to those folks? Well, depending on what you're talking about, because going on a ten day hunger strike in uh, dangerous projects was a hundred percent done to try to get people to pay attention. And 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 to try to prick people's empathy and and you know the, the the place I did this hunger strike, it used to really frustrate me because it was right kind of under an overpass to this highway that goes off ninety five and goes right into the wealthiest suburbs in the country right. and people would just get off right there in Newark almost like a McDonald's drive through and buy drugs in this place then get back on and wow. forget what they they just drove through and not realize the hell that was being unleashed as a result of the drug trade there that they were participating in. So sometimes you do do things because you want people to understand. You put yourself on food stamps, uh, uh, SNAP benefits, and document it and show how freaking hard it was. And for me, it was even empathy growing because I'm a guy that lives in a neighborhood where people use uh, uh, what is amounts to food stamps. And for me, even, I, I by the end of that two weeks, I would have killed somebody for some ice cream. I was just like, you know, I mean, and, and yet you see people who are in a supermarket checkout line trying to judge people what they're buying. Mm. So, look, I knew as mayor of a city that everybody had locked in their mind as just a place of crime and corruption. I couldn't get philanthropy. I couldn't get developers. I couldn't get... I remember a supermarket chain I went out to see in Las Vegas, and they laughed at me when I suggested coming to a place where there's a food desert. And so a strategy for mine as mayor, by the time I became mayor, because some of those things I did when I was a city councilman, was I have to put my city on a map, and I've got to get people to pay attention to it and expand their moral imagination about what's possible here because they don't see the worth of my community. And so we did crazy stuff. I mean, I remember I couldn't get on TV shows to talk about it, so when Conan O'Brien insulted my city on The Tonight Show. He, he literally said that I did, had done something to lower prescription drugs for some of my constituents, got some national attention, prescription drug costs, I did. And, 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 and so he goes on TV and says, I hear Newark, New Jersey has a, a, a great new health care uh, plan. And, and then he says, well, I think the best health care plan for the city of Newark is a bus ticket out of town. Oh. And I was like, damn, okay, okay, Conan, it's on. Let's talk. And, and I, I, did, I filmed a video uh, and I basically said behind my mayor's desk, looking all official, that Conan O'Brien has insulted the city of Newark. And by the power vested in me, I bragged about the city a little bit and made some other jokes. But I said, by the power vested in me, by the people of the city of Newark, uh, yeah, I hereby ban Conan O'Brien from Newark Airport. You're, you're on the no-fly list. Try JFK, buddy. And, and the, the thing goes viral. I mean, so viral that the TSA 
on his website did a little clarification that mayors in America can't ban people from their airports. Just clear. Yeah, and it just became a big story. And Conan responds and plays along because then he bans me from Burbank Airport, okay. which some of your listeners know if you're flying to L.A., that's not a big deal. Right. But it became the like the number one story in America, that, that sort of news cycle. And now I'm sitting on Larry King's show and suddenly getting a chance to talk about my city he ends up uh, uh, inviting me on his show after Hillary Clinton recorded a video as a right. joke, just saying, you know, Corey Conan, give peace a chance kind of thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I'm on national TV now. A mayor of Newark, New Jersey uh, uh, is sitting next, sitting on the Tonight Show couch talking about his city. Conan, to his credit, apologizes and gives $100,000 to Newark Charities. Nice. But coming off of that, I now had more earned media in a week for my city, positive earned media that we probably got in the previous 10 years. And uh, I can now call foundation heads. They knew who I was. So some of this, frankly, Donald Trump was found creative ways and dark, awful ways to to steal media attention, to become the story, to bring – to to uh, to to disintermediate the media. I mean, yeah. he used Twitter. I used to use Twitter in creative ways yeah. in Newark yeah. to help people solve problems. And, and it connected you. It made you very direct. Yeah. And like we can reach out to him and tell him, "Hey, my my grandfather is snowed in." Yeah. And you're like, "Yes, I will help him." Not like you know, we're gonna bomb a country if they don't give us money. Yes. And so I I. Like it's like when TV first came out, people said it was going to destroy society. And but it actually ended up being a neutral platform for both the profane and 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 and, and also for the profound. It, it was a cultural unifier. Mm-hmm. Roots, the last episode of Mash, mm-hmm. um, um, and it also drove a celebrity culture where we mistake now wealth with worth, celebrity with significance, popularity for purpose. So. Twitter and these social media platforms are brave new world for us, but there are people every day that use them for good, and yeah. then there a president found ways to, you know, to to distract us. Soak evil. I, I would I would literally agree. He's used those platforms to drive hate, bigotry, racism. I mean, specifically right now, we have this national controversy that we're dealing with, which comes from his tweets where he's attacking uh, Congresswoman Omar and Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Tlaib and uh, who's the other fourth member of the squad? I'm forgetting. Um, uh, Omar. Uh, I'm forgetting the fourth member of the squad. Right. No, no, Presley. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Congresswoman Presley. My mother's congresswoman. Okay, all yes, right. Yes. Um, uh, you know, just just a baseless attack. That is just pure racism, just pure, if you don't like black and brown people, this is for you. Um, I, I mean, and we've been dealing with this for years now. I, I wouldn't, I would even go further than that. Let's be clear. We've been dealing with this from the founding of our nation. Of course. Of course. I mean, there, there is bigotry written to our documents. Native Americans in the Declaration of Independence are referred to as savages. Mm-hmm. And, and this brand of politics we've seen, I mean, I, I've been looking at Donald Trump's language George Wallace used the same racist tropes, the same ones, accusing your enemies of yep. being communists. Martin Luther King was accused of being communist. Yep. Um, uh, the Know Nothing Party, mm-hmm. which was an anti-immigration party, then against Irish and German, he uses the same tropes. Mm-hmm. And, and in his career, the, the same thing he's saying about making up abject lies about Ilhan Omar and al-Qaeda, he used the same type of lies when 9-11 happened. And he said there were thousands of Muslims in Jersey City standing on buildings celebrating. Yes. An abject lie. And so he is worse than a racist. He is somebody that is using racism 
as a way to demean, degrade, and a way to, to, to like the Know Nothing Party did, as a way to elevate his political power. He is trafficking in this. He is feeding upon these baser emotions, instincts, and bigotries to and, propel himself forward. And it looks like this is what his campaign is going to be about. But we saw this in the 2018 midterms. Yeah. And by the way, the mainstream media played into it. He was a guy. We, we are literally the strongest nation in human civilization. And he wanted to try to make us terrified of, uh, of – this was the main story that he was pushing going into the 2018 elections, that the strongest nation on the planet Earth should be afraid of a caravan of migrants. Right, right, right. right. Unarmed, right. poor people right. co- coming with nothing. Women and children. And, and, and by the way, the New York Times had, had at least three of the five days leading into above the fold yeah. pictures of this so-called threat to this country. And as soon as the election was over, boom, nothing happened. Now, I want to go through more elections because I still remember Obama dealing with a midterm that he got shellacked. I think it was a 2014 election. The, the right-wing noise machine, it was all about Ebola. And mm. all these th- – all the, it was Ebola and the caravan then too. The, 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 it was all fear-based politics appealing to people's – you know, uh, I, I would be surprised if it wasn't the – the, what was it? What do they call them? The African bees, the, the right, African right, right, killing right. bees. Right. Anything to conjure images of fears. Uh, I have a friend of mine uh, uh, from Montana, uh, the Tester, who told me that John the, Tester, John yeah, Tester yeah. is the, one of my favorite people. Period. Yeah, great senator, in, in yeah. all of Washington. Hilarious guy, and and just a guy I can joke with. We have funny videos out there of him mugging me on the basketball court. I mean, he literally is like, I should have pressed charges after what he did to me going for a layup. Um, and he's a funny guy. He said, Corey, come up and campaign for me. And I joke with him. Yeah, you're trying to get me to get the African-American vote in Montana. I, don't worry, John. I will find the five of them and make sure that at least you get at least 60% of their support. And at least three of them I'll get for you. But then one of the top polling issues in his campaign was immigration at the border. And it's Montana. And I'm not talking about the Canadian border. Immigration is not a massive impact on most Americans' lives. It's not a big impact on their economic lives. And you see the impact of the Republican Party and the right-wing media machine making this a massive issue where in the Democratic debate, the first issue we go to is immigration. This is not a major issue for – not like climate – not like the war on drugs, not like right. economic issues. Well, I will, I'll give you this. The, the, the flip of this, actually, is that it is a big impact in a positive way. Mm, yes. I mean, the, the Dreamers alone add billions of dollars to yes. our economy. I, I brought a Dreamer to, uh, to the State of the Union address, a woman who started an internet platform. And it's almost comical to me if it wasn't tragic and if her life isn't thrown into fear and anxiety. But she created an internet platform that is employing part-time about 800 people. I mean, I mean, there's a Rhodes Scholar that's a dreamer that can't go over. It, 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 we, what we're doing, these self-inflicted wounds we're doing to ourselves, all under the name of security, which, by the way, Donald Trump is making us less secure because, as I know from Newark, now you have immigrant communities who are afraid to report crimes. Right, 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 right. So our communities, you're tearing at the fabric of our communities that, that you need them to be more united in order to fight back against the real threats to us. So I, I just, the, the, if this if anything, it is a tired, well-worn tread mm-hmm. in, in, our, in, our, in our politics. As I often say, the gardens of American democracy have never been free of the weeds of demagoguery, bigotry, hate, uh, nativism. True. But the things defined us, which this is our test, 
is how we've responded to those weeds. And so this, I say this 2014, this, excuse me, this 2020 election is a very powerful, oh, feedback. Uh, um, the 2014 election is, is as much a referendum on him as it is on who we are and who we're going to be to each other. And do these vile strain, strains that have existed in every generation of, our, of, of culture uh, strangle us and pull us down, or do we rid ourselves of them? And again, herald those ideals of grace and empathy, the ideals of, as, as those framers where I just talked about the, the Declaration of Independence getting some things wrong, but obviously this is one of the greatest documents written in humanity, heralding the beginning of our country. And what they got right at the end was saying, if, if we're going to make it as a nation— we need a declaration of interdependence. They said we must mutually pledge yes. to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And so that wor- those words, sacred honor, is like, is that kind of what we're going to be about? Because there's nothing sacred, nothing honorable about the way this president is conducting his do, politics. Do you think that you and the other Democrats in the Senate and in Congress have done enough to thwart what Trump has been trying to do? Clearly no. I mean, clearly no. And, and look, we, we thwarted him in the 2018 elections in a significant way. Mm-hmm. But the ultimate test, or are we doing enough, is going to become to the 2020 elections. And remember, we were a party divided going into the 2016 elections. And we were a party that was letting other, literally foreign nationals, feast upon our divisions. You know, we the Russians, if you, I've read the intelligence reports, their strategy is to make us hate each other, not just American Republican Democrats, which they feed that and fuel that, which is problematic because we need new American majorities, cross-party majorities to get big stuff done. But they also are making us hate each other as Democrats as well, trying to trying to foment a, a, a battle between left and right, between Bernie Sanders supporters and Secretary Clinton supporters. And and I've seen the bots. I've seen their tactics. If, if we are not consciously trying to put more indivisible back into this one nation under God, trying to find common cause and common ground. And and this d- desire to thinking that as Democrats we have to defeat Republicans as opposed to what I try to talk about. It's like, look, yeah, I want to win my elect- partisan elections, but the larger cause has got to be to unite Americans. Right. And and so I remember going out to <laughs> going out to red state meet with red state Republican farmers. This is before I'm running for president of the United States because I knew we had common cause. And one of the farms I went to, and I'll never forget this gentleman brought his neighbors together. But but the person who was chirping me around didn't tell me this till after I was leaving, that that guy didn't want me in his house. He called them up and said, I can't have Cory Booker in my house because we are a Christian family. And the guy's like, well, uh, I don't know what religion has to do with this, but Cory is a pretty Christian Christian. He's like, this faith's really important to him. But the guy had been in his echo chamber, which is designed to make us hate each other. Yeah. And by the way, you get better ratings the more you fire up people's hate yeah. and and get people more outraged. Um, and so I still remember how funny it was when I walked out of the car. I could sense this guy's standoffness. And he took me down to see his you know, his cows. And I'm trying to, you know, for me, it's a challenge to try to make somebody laugh. So I'm making the worst jokes known to man. Like this, <laughs> your herd is utterly amazing. Uh, you know, um, I'm going to loin some lessons here. I'm going to milk this moment for everything. I, so I just was going on until finally he started smiling. Okay. And and he even left, said, made a remark to me as we were walking back to his house. He goes, I thought I was going to have to tell you to smile. Because again, they're pitching the angry black guy in that so we get to his house and we start talking about the issues. 
most Americans don't know that the, sh- the consumer share, the, con- the farmer's share of the consumer dollar has gone down dramatically. Why? Mm-hmm. Corporate consolidation in the ag sector. Mm-hmm. Monsanto and other, a few companies now control the majority of their source products, the seeds and the chemicals for farming, raising their prices. They're getting squeezed from the top because now instead of having three or four people to competing to buy, to buy their goods, they have one. In fact, one of the guys had to be encouraged by his neighbors to tell me the truth because he was so afraid of that one company that he was going to criticize finding out and cutting him off, mm. making an example out of wow. him. And so by the time we're leaving, he's asking for selfies with me and his family and we're getting along. There's one of my – I love Brene Brown. I'm just one of these guys that has uh, – I love her too. Yes. Thank you for saying that as two fellas. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and she has a saying that it's hard to hate up close, so pull right. people in. Right. And, and if we are not doing the exercise – look, I had grievances with Chris Christie. I mean, I could write a dissertation on my disagreements with him. <laughs> but he was the governor of the state, mm-hmm. and I was the mayor of the largest city. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get things done without finding common ground, and we found friendship, um, even though we disagree on, on big issues. And, and, and you've and, taken that to the Senate. You are one of the Democrats who are consistently reaching across the aisle – finding Republicans to uh, do things with. And it seems like he's not just finding the Republican who can work, but he's making friends across the aisle, which seems difficult when the GOP really is enthralled with division and dislike and hatred and and just going to D.C. to obstruct and and create dysfunction. Right. Um, and, And yet you've been able to make common cause with these folks. Have you done that? Well, first of all, it's very easy to fall into believing that the other side is somehow evil. Like, and there are people tell them to think we're evil, and, and we do demonizing as well. And, and I know this because, look, Chris Christie, going back to him, he fell 10 points in the Iowa, in the New Hampshire polls because they ran commercials against him mm-hmm. hugging Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Hugging a man was such a betrayal in their primary that, and I'm not exaggerating. They, yep. That was the main point of their commercial. You hugged Barack Obama. Yep. And he, so when I hugged John McCain on the Senate floor after he came back from what became a terminal cancer diagnosis, by the time I got home, I was being torched by people on Twitter. And it's almost like we're saying that we – that just having common conversation or human contact – but by the way, that creates an environment where you don't get things done. And the story I have been telling a lot – is after it was right around the Kavanaugh hearings that I'm battling to negotiate the criminal justice reform bill. And let me tell you, the thousands of people that are now getting out of prison, disproportionately African-American, you know, the, the crack cocaine, powder cocaine disparity, retroactivity change alone, I hope I'm not using too much Washington speak, what I mean by that is that there was disparities for powder and crack cocaine that are just unjust in terms of just the science of the drug. Right. And crack is something that's more, that, that more African-Americans would be arrested by. So by changing the ratio of not being 100 to 1 to 18 to 1 was progress. 1 to 1 would be what I want. Right. But they didn't make it retroactive. Right. So you had people in prison for generation <laughs> versus people who got sentenced after changing it to 18 to 1 that were coming in and out. So we made it retroactive in this bill. 90% of the people affected that are black. So here I am in the throes of, of negotiating a bill. And if the Kavanaugh hearings going on, right. which I was just rolling up my sleeves and saying, okay, let's fight. I mean, I had yep. Cornyn during that threatening to throw me out of the Senate. And I'm like, bring it, man. I'm, I'm, this is something we just got to fight over. But during that, I'm trying to get the last provision into that bill, which is something very personal to me because what we do to, in this case, other countries call torture, which is putting children in solitary confinement. 
And I'll never forget in my negotiation with the White House, they, they, they loop in Lindsey Graham, who coming out of the Kavanaugh hearing wasn't the most popular person. But I have a relationship with Lindsey. And as soon as Lindsey's pulled in by the White House, he goes to bat for me. He says, you can't get this bill done without Corey. Point blank. Give him what he wants. That The law of our land on the federal level is an effective ban on juvenile solitary confinement because I had a relationship with somebody who I vehemently disagree with on a lot of issues. And those relationships are hard to create. Are there are there moments for Dems and Republicans to create those or do you have to go out of your way to create those relationships? You work on them. And, they, and there are people on their side of the aisle that work as well. I got recently a Ooh. senator – I got recently asked to go to meet with a senator, go out to dinner with a senator. Um, I don't want to say who because I don't know if he wants it public. But, you know, I'm friends with Tim Scott. I am legitimately friends. I love the brother. I I mean, I would love to see a Democrat in that seat. but, but, But he and I have got big things done together. There's a bill called Opportunity Zones right now that's, you know, Heflin, Alabama is building a memory center. We as Dems are more willing to reach across the aisle than they are, right? And their folks tell them, uh, we want you to go to Washington to have principle. And we as Dem voters tell our folks, we want you to go to Washington to get things done and make compromises where necessary. Right, but I don't want to in any way give people this impression that fighting to find common ground makes you weak on the issues that right. matter. Right. I mean, when I, I have well, fought, as long as you're not giving up. Yes, you can. Fu- you could stand your ground and find common ground. Yeah. And if I'm president of the United States, it's the same thing when I was mayor. People on my block don't have time. Don't they don't care at the end of the day about my partisan battles. They need progress. Right. That criminal justice bill. They don't care if I had to have a friendship with Lindsey Graham to get it done or not. They they just want to see people liberated from prison who don't belong there. Right. And so as president of the United States, I, you know, I will never let uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good right. because people really need good. Right. I won't hijack progress for some purity. And, and this is where I don't understand sometimes in my party – People take shots at folks that are actually trying to make the sausage because they know that, hey, we may not be able to get Medicare for all in, in, in that first Congress. But if I can create a public option and, and lower prescription drug costs, there are going to be millions of Americans benefited from that. And so I'm a warrior. And, and, and the best way I've been a warrior in my – the way I got things down in Newark is by changing the game, right. like changing the field itself, like, like – Getting expanding empathy and moral imagination, getting more bigger coalitions, but but at the end of the day, as president of the United States, every single day, my obligation is to make lives better for more people. Right. And if I, that means I have to sit down and strike a deal with Mitch McConnell, I'm going to sit down and strike the deal. And what I found, to your point, is I go to Bible study, which is in a Republicans very big, powerful Republicans hideaway, and I pray. And study Bible with with Republicans, and more Republicans, as you can imagine, are there than Democrats. Sure. But that has created an environment where I have a relationship that I can reach out. One of my first big amendments on a bill was done, and that's Washington speak. It was actually about homeless and foster kids that I was trying to get something done on, get something on an education bill. And they they were they had shut that bill down. They were not going to let any amendments on. That was. The manager of that bill was intent not to let anything on. But I had a relationship with, with, with this powerful Republican who I prayed with in his office and saw his humanity. In fact, I noticed there was a black girl framed picture on his, on his, um, on his, on his shelf, and his family has been involved in adoptions. Wow. 
And so I knew I could go up to him and say, I got an amendment to deal with foster kids and homeless kids. And I know your heart. We may disagree on so much. But he ended up co-sponsoring this amendment with me, and it became part of the law. So I, 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 I feel like I'm Hannibal sometimes, where I'm going to either find a way or make a way. And, and I, don't think that I, I don't think that I am going to relent in a, in a, to, to this idea in the country that we are destined to be more tribalistic, us first them politics, zero-sum game politics. That, that's just not the, how we get things done. But Mitch McConnell has oh, created yeah. a Senate that is unlike any we have had in American oh. history, and he is a singular problem with the current Congress. Yes. And if he had his way, I imagine that criminal justice bill that we got done would have never got to the Senate floor. He had to be persuaded. But he was. And I know the nature of the man, and I've watched him closely now for years. If I am president of the United States, we will get things to this. And he's still there. We will get things done that people say they don't think you can get done. And if you if, if you don't think that's just bluster, it's how I got things done in Newark, people that said they couldn't get done. It's how I've gotten bills done in the Senate that, that people told me we couldn't get done. Because... Obama struggled with that. Obama mightily, and 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 by the way, just because something hasn't worked in the past, I used to hear that all the time in City Hall. We you, can't do this. We've tried this before. You are filled with hope. It is amazing. I am a prisoner of hope. A prisoner. And, and hope, as I learned from folk in Newark, a woman on the fifth floor of the projects whose son was murdered, and she was still one of the most hopeful people I ever met. She taught me that hope is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. Mm. You can't beat somebody who does not give up. You and I are sitting here because a whole bunch of people went through the most wretched circumstances imaginable, heartache and pain that you and I will never know, but they never, ever gave up. And so when, when, you, when people tell me Obama tried this, it couldn't get done, I'm like, yeah, well, Obama is a different brother than I am. And, and, <laughs> okay. and No, but he, he tried things. He laid a lot of foundation, but I'm not Obama, and, and I'm willing to fight in ways that that – if Trump is not going to abide by the norms of Congress, I'm not going to abide by the norms of Washington, D.C. and Congress to get things done. And by the like, way— what would you do? What do you mean? Well, look, we now know that <laughs> that the way Trump is using his social media platforms, saying things that people don't expect to be said, has changed the norms of, of Washington. Yeah. And so as a guy who— Changed the expectations of my city by taking on Conan O'Brien using Twitter, using social media, and got my my city disregarded, disrespected, just playing dissed, dissed by Conan. Suddenly, the national conversation. I know a little bit about creative ways of which to change the national conversation, okay. and our party has made terrible mistakes by not thinking that we can win in all fifty states. Right. Let me just give you an example. Like you and I both have our, our smartphones here. I look. At, I love social science as a guy who has a master's degree in sociology. And as you know, one of the most persuasive things that will make you vote, and I'm not going to ask you what your voter record, you don't have to put it out there, but if you knew your friends and family were going to know if you voted in yep. your last school board election. Yep. And you knew, yep. like literally your mom would know that you did not vote in the last school board election. That's shame. Shame is a powerful motivator. Now let, yep. me, go to, let me go to black church. 
Uh, I, my minister, uh, Dr. David Jefferson, Pastor Jefferson, I, I prayed today multiple times. <laughs> I just want him to know that, uh, that I, he's counseled me in the power of prayer. Okay. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? Um, amen. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> and, and, you know, Pastor Jefferson is a hardworking guy when it comes to knowing the obligation, the moral obligation to participate in this democracy. He doesn't tell you to yeah. vote for, but he's like souls and polls, bus, whatever. What if I could tell you, and we could do this, the databases of voter records is public information. What if every minister, like my pastor, had a phone app mm-hmm. with all the lists of people in his church and their voting record in every vote, and he could literally send you a text message that said you did not vote in the last school board election? Or, 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 or look at you during the sermon yes. and say, uh, Sister Betty, what happened last Tuesday? You didn't make it. What's the problem? Right. Or say, I want these 150 people to stand up right now, and I love you, but when you don't vote, you cause some problems in this community. I'm not telling you who to vote. So we have tools and technologies to move people to vote that my party is just not using. And if we use them, I'm going to tell you what. Texas would be a blue state. That's two more senators vote against Mitch McConnell. Wow, that's saying a lot. Texas, we've been dreaming of Texas for 10, 15 years. But I'm not, I'm not just bolstering. I'm saying look at the demographics of the population of Texas. Yeah. It is a blue state. Look at the demographics of Georgia. It is a blue state. Why do you think in those states they're going to such lengths right now to deny and suppress the vote to minorities? Mm -hmm. Because they know the trend is coming. They are afraid. But we as Dems are also expecting uh, Latino and Latina brothers and sisters to vote Democratic the way black people. And they are not, for whatever reason, multiple reasons, they are not just part of the Democratic Party the way black people people are. There's, there's, African Americans are the most loyal base to the Democratic Party. Yes. And, 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 but Latinos are overwhelmingly so, just because 25% or Bush, I think he got somewhere like 40%. But it doesn't mean that, that, they're, that, we, that they're not up for grabs and we have a better advantage of getting there, especially at a party right now that's so willing to traffic in overt racism. 2012, they did a report in the Republican Party, sort of the autopsy, the autopsy, the famous autopsy, and they concluded unequivocally that we got to stop the racism yeah. and and start trying to reach out. Trump said, "Nah, no, we're going the other way. We're going the absolute triple down. Other, triple down." And so, what he did by that is is in many ways surrender uh, uh, large portions of of minority groups. Uh, and I hear it everywhere. I hear it from Bangladeshi. I hear it from – you can name me the ethnic group right now. Right. They feel some kind of way about a president who's coming after them, their culture, their heritage, calling their origin countries shithole countries. And so what I'm, I'm, I'm basically saying we have the technology. I sound like I'm now at the beginning of a $6 million man, which if you <laughs> – know, can build it. We can build it. <laughs> Knowing that I just cut off all your millennials in the office who may not know. That <laughs> what is this a dollar. Um, but, but the reality is – I think we made a mistake in 2008 where we had massive momentum, Mm. massive energy, and we didn't directly channel that into building a 50-state effort to engage people, not in one person, Obama for America or organizer, but to engage people in unabashedly, unapologetically building the Democratic Party, which which lost its mojo already. I'm willing to say that with factory workers, union workers. You know, mine, I could go through the people that we, we stopped yep. giving them a vision for who we are. Farmers yep. should be with us. And so what I'm saying is if I end up being the president, 
Before I'm the president of the United States, I'll be elected in November and I will be the de facto leader of the Democratic Party. Right. I'm going to bring a 21st century party using new technologies, new creativity, new determination uh, to, to make sure that we begin to win the kind of majorities we need that Mitch McConnell never sees that majority seat again. Because if we don't have a long-term strategy, like they had a long-term strategy after Roe v. Wade. Oh, yeah. They, they be, I saw it in my law school. Oh, yeah. Outside funders funding the Federalist Society. I mean, they built that, that strategy that gets us to the point right now where Alabama and other states are trying to take away women's rights and, challenge, and saying, yeah, we mm-hmm. want to go. We're, mm-hmm. we're writing this bill so we do go to the Supreme Court because we know yep. we got it. Yep. If we don't have the same long-term strategy with a leader of the party who understands that it's not about one election. Oh, we got Obama elected. Yay. Now we can all go back to not doing things. I tell people this openly. You elect me to be your president, Democrat or Republican. I'm going to warn you right now. I'm going to ask more from you than any president of your lifetime has asked. I'm not asking you to pay more taxes. I'm not asking you to put up with stuff. But this country moves forward when people take their, their citizenship seriously. You mean like a Peace Corps sort of thing? I, oh, I believe in, uh, in, universe, in service programs like Peace Corps or AmeriCorps. But I'm just talking about, like, what are you doing in, in your neighborhood to make America better? I'm not asking you to storm beaches in Normandy. I'm not asking you to do freedom rides knowing you're going to get beaten. But we as Americans, this is not a free ride. And we are under global competition right now. And we can shovel our neighbor's law, d- yard and these sorts of things. Thank right? that and level of kindness. Because I have people that are saying, oh, the world is so mean, somebody should change. Hell, if you want you more start. kindness, you start being more kind. Want more hope? You be an agent of hope. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. 
On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I'm Torre. Check out my new podcast, Democracy-ish, a podcast about the 2020 election from a black and progressive point of view. Each week with my co-host, Danielle Moody-Mills, we will break down all the ish in the election cycle. Tune in each week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that's been leveled at me throughout my life, oh, you're a white guy. You're like a white black guy. And Tucker Carlson said that about you the other day, that you're like the whitest black guy in the race or in America or something. I don't know. And I I wouldn't ask you this if I had not dealt with this in my own life. But how do you... How do you process that? How do you, how, what do you think about that when people say that? Like, oh, he seems kind of whitish. Like, which I, I understand that's ridiculous, but yeah. it's a thing that I have heard that you, I'm sure that was not yeah. the first time you heard that. No, I, I would have given it some attention maybe when I was 17 or 18. And many of us were trying to figure out like identity right. issues. Who am I? Right. Yeah, right. Who am I? Yeah. And, and you're struggling. Like, you, you know, what is blackness? I mean, literally, I would sit around at Ujima, which was our black door, and have conversations. Yeah. You know, is it the music you listen to? I mean, Arthur Ashe was considered like, oh, yeah. he's playing this white sport. Who does he think he is? Yes. You know, so I I got to a point when I was coming of age as a young 20-something person who was being pulled over by the police, surrounded by cops, guns drawn, screaming at me that I was black because of a struggle, not the I luxuriate in black culture, black music, but for me, it was a deeper portal to understand the urgency of injustice. And and I became very fiercely clear about what defines my culture to me, which is being a part of a struggle for it. And, and if I was going to be about it, I needed to be in it. And so you're talking to the only United States senator that lives in a black community, mm-hmm. not just any black community, lives in an inner city low income 2010 census for my median income was $14,000 per household, who has built his entire adult life in service of communities like black and brown communities that are left out, left behind, looked down upon, and struggling with us. So nothing Tucker Carlson could say, I mean, it's almost comical to it me, could make me even second guess the truth of who I am right. and, and how I am honoring my ancestors, both black and white, who fought who did outrageous things in the cause of justice, which that's what, to me, what this is all about. And so, you know, look, there are a lot of folks that, I mean, I, I'm the hilarious thing, I have, I have a black campaign manager, who I think in, for a major campaign is the first ever black male campaign manager, uh, a very diverse office, but he laughed at me because I spoke in California and somebody said to him, he goes, 
uh, I didn't know Cory Book was black <laughs> because I've got like 50, I started this campaign with like 50% name recognition. And then there are people surprised that I have two black parents. I have two black parents who went to HBCUs. My mom is a Delta. I mean, so a lot of these things, I'm introducing myself and folks don't know. Folks don't know where I live, where I've done. And so things that you've said you've heard about me since before I was mayor, this is my time to let folks know what where I am. And my faith is important. My race and ethnicity is important. The same way JFK is race and ethnicity and Catholicism yep. was important to him. These are all threads that make me very American, frankly, as we all are Americans coming from different threads. But who I am is very much shaped by those strong cultural cords that make me up who I am, make up my identity. And by the way, that's part of the larger fabric. But more importantly, what I hope people find out about me is from my faith to my race, uh, uh, to my geography, where I've grown up and what I where I live in Newark, all of these things have motivated me to run for president, to to try to help this country live up to who we say we are when we put our hand on our heart and swear an oath to our civic gospel that this is a nation of liberty and justice for all. This is my portal to be a warrior for that kind of justice and, and why I'm going to hopefully be in the arena for a all-out slugfest with Donald Trump and plan on knocking him out of the ring, metaphorically. 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 Figuratively. 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 Um, and, and so I hope people get to know that. And Tucker Carlson, I love when people attack you because it says more about them sure. than it does about you. Absolutely. And it also shows – they show their hand a little bit about what, what they figure is your strength. Because the Republican Party has a great way of trying to turn people's strengths into weaknesses, thus yes. the swift boating of one of our former nominees yes. who there's no way you could say that this guy wasn't a war hero, but somehow they perverted the waters. So it's interesting to see me how they are attacking me now, like Donald Trump in some of his rallies. Like, He's driven Newark into the ground. One of the things that we have seen in this race so far uh, is Kamala Harris rising up in the polls after a very righteous attack on Joe Biden. And that was not an underhanded political attack. That was something that I might have said to him personally if I had been in that moment with him. Like, Joe, you know, you really hurt my feelings saying that what you said. Um, But we see, you know, at this stage of the campaign, we're in the first quarter still, but, you know, we're grasping for air here. Um, That sort of rhetorical punch in the face in a debate can really launch you up. And I look at you, you're like, he's such a nice guy. He's not going to do that. Can you do that? Are you willing to do that in the right way, um, you know, to propel the campaign? Well, I remind you that before Kamala Harris did that in front of 20 million Americans, you remember in the two weeks before that, Joe Biden was saying publicly, Cory Booker should apologize. Yes, you, yes, yes. Because I stood up and said what you said was wrong and, and broke it down quite quite pointedly yes. for what he did. But, but but saying it on the debate stage becomes much more of a galvanizing Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. And I was uh, pulled a draw where I didn't have Donald Trump next to me. Right, right. I, Joe, me, Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Right, right, right. That was a bad mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and so, look, anybody, there is a documentary, Oscar-nominated documentary about me called Street Fight. Yeah, uh, lost the March of the Penguins. By the way, uh, don't don't go up against a documentary that has Morgan Freeman narrating. Penguins, <laughs> look at the penguins. <laughs> um, so anybody who knows me knows, and this is why I'm hoping America will know, and hope your viewer, your listeners will go watch the documentary on Netflix. I came up through politics, which was just 
brass knuckles fighting. You don't win in Newark, in, in right. Brick City, unless right. you know how to stand in the ring and, 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 and figuratively throw some punches. And by the way, take some punches too. Sure. Uh, uh, as, as Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan until I punch him in the face. Punch in the face. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Um, so I, I am, don't mistake niceness. For not being tough, hard nose, hard charging, hard fighting. I'm a, I'm a damn former tight end for Stanford University. I know how to buckle my strim trap, uh, my my uh, chin strap, and go out there and hit folk. And the reality is, is people who take a second to wake. Oh, wait a minute! This was a guy during the Kavanaugh hearing that was going toe to toe with Cornyn. This was a guy that stood up to Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, yeah, that was tough. Yeah, and and broke with a century plus of Senate tradition. Yep. So I I am. Anybody who knows me, and this is, I think, I think it was Shots, uh, Senator Shots from Hawaii, who said something like, "I now know Cory Booker, and he's not taking sides; he doesn't endorse anybody." But anybody who thinks this guy who does believe in kindness and decency and civility cannot throw a punch and and be as tough as hell it doesn't understand Cory Booker. And I'm, so, is that what we might expect from you in the next debate? I, I think in the first of all, in the other in the debate I was in, you understand that we came out of that debate with like our best fundraising days because people were like in fact we were the number one google person on that stage people were like oh wait a minute who is that guy who just broke it down on gun violence and said you know basically come to my neighborhood where there are shootings all the time and let me tell you why i have a bolder plan than the other people on the stage so you from my elections in newark which people now can see in movies all the way up to my fighting to be the first black fourth black person ever elected in the united states senate uh in the popular elections um, uh, I, I'm a fighter, that, and you will see that coming out in this election. Um, but I will tell you this, you know, as I'm running for the stage in Iowa, one of my favorite moments in the campaign so far, big dude sees me, big dude puts his arm around me, thinks he's going to have a bro moment and says, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. And my response to them is, dude, that's a felony, <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is, is to understand that Donald Trump wants us to fight him on his turf, on his terms, using his tactics. Right. Some of the strongest people I know stood up to Bull Connor and beat him, not by bringing bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses, but by scratching their normal record. And these artists of activism called to the moral imagination of a country and energized more people to come out and get involved in change. This election really needs also not somebody who's going to try to out-Trump Trump. I think that's how he wins. Right. I think this election is somebody who's scratched the record and called to this country it's show the absurdity of those tactics and can call to this nation to get more people engaged and more people involved. Remember, Hillary would be president right now. She would have at least won Michigan and Wisconsin if black people had been more, had come to the polls at higher rates. I'm not putting it all on black people. There's a whole bunch of other people that should have come out too. But just exciting the African-American vote would have won us those states. So the path to, if you are fortunate enough to get the nomination, the, the strategy to beating Trump is what? Number one, knowing how to throw punches that land on a guy who... But has, not getting in his game. He, he, if you try to play him on his turf, in his terms, that is a recipe for losing. And, and, and those people who preach fight fire for, with fire, I, I have run a fire department as a former mayor. It's not a good strategy. <laughs> um, um, and so, again, I know how to do this. I've actually taken on outrageous bullies before and beat them. I've taken on demagogues before. And beat them. And the way you do it is by, number one, showing the absurdity of who they are, revealing them that this emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. and, and finding creative, sometimes funny, sometimes pointed ways of doing that. 
And then you also understand that your real strength comes from the people. And you, we need the next leader to be the kind of aspirational leader that can energize people, some over their cynicism, some over their despair, but get more people to the polls than has usually come from certain communities, whether that be suburban women or uh, urban uh, urban Latinos or uh, uh, or whomever. And and I'm going to be the a very exciting, inspiring leader, get, getting people energized and engaged. And I'm going to take that guy down uh, a number of pegs so that some of the people who left our party thinking he was the champion and now understand that he's a chump, that this is a guy who is a fraud, that this is a guy that is weak physically, mentally, and morally. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and, and I will be the person that best shows that contrast. So, okay, that's how you do the general. Now, how do you get the nomination? What is the path to getting the nomination? How well, do you do that? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that anybody who's like looking at polls right now and using that as their guide of who's doing well and who's not, I remind you. That it's the, early. Not just as early, that the only people that have gone on from our party to be president that at this point right now are considered long shots. Jimmy sure. Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. Yeah. No. But what they did do is what we're doing. Actually, the metrics you should be looking at are things like the Des Moines Register, which is written in mm-hmm. Iowa, that mm-hmm. me and Elizabeth Warren by far have the best organizations on the ground. I'm in the top three in endorsements from state leaders and legislators and the like. We are building an operation that's going to win these those early primary states before you turn to go to Nevada and South Carolina where the demographics change. We come out of those first two primary states, one, two, or three, which we will. We are going to have the kind of momentum going into the Super Tuesday. I mean, South Carolina – Seems to be more to your favor. Iowa and New Hampshire a little bit harder? No, well, first of all, as a guy whose family's from Iowa, uh, okay. my grandmother born and raised in Des Moines, where a lot of folks don't realize, big, significant black community up there more than I think people know. I, I did not know yes, that. Yes, there is. There is uh, and in, by the way, in narrow margins, a lot of these communities are going to have an outsized impact when you have that many people running. But I I actually just say that more to say that we are doing what passed. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Iowa primary winners are doing, and we're doing it well. 
which is organize, organize, organize. And in Iowa, it is all about those connections. John Kerry was polling at 4% right before the Iowa, about a month before Iowa, and ended up winning the state because he made those connections. He had those relationships. He built that organization. And so if we now know that the polling metrics this far out don't mean anything, but the organizations do, then you are automatically going to see me as one of the top two or three people in this race. Okay. I feel like the way that we conduct this whole presidential campaign is not a good test. No. It, the, the, the things that we ask of you guys in terms of, you know, debate question, 30 seconds, tell us your whole life philosophy, like 30 seconds. Yes. Like, just, just all the whole, the gotcha game, the oppo research, and the... It is just a terrible way to choose a president. Do, are, are you seeing? Do you feel that way when you're inside the system? Well, I will agree with you on the debates, which are more uh, a, not a test of like healthcare policy, one minute go. Yeah, but they are a test to see how you can, how nimble you are, how well you can throw a punch, take a punch. And by the way, I think people are evaluating you on that stage to how you're going to deal with when you're on a one-on-one stage with Donald Trump. And I, so I think that you do glean things from that. So I don't want to poo-poo all but on that. When you're, but it, when you're president, you're, you're never no. going to be in a debate no. until well, four years later. Right. Well, that's the point I think is better, is what is going to prepare you for the job. And so I, I used to think this was – I used to have to sell a lot of the same criticism. But now that I'm through this, this is actually a real endurance test where people, especially in early primary states, get to feel you. Not just see you, not just hear you, but they get to feel you. And I think there's something about – a grueling long process where you and, – and, and people – remember, we're 197 days, I think, out from Iowa. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be a long process for which people to see you in all different kinds of circumstances. But even that, does it make sense for a nation of 50 states yes. to always let Iowa be first? And nothing against Iowa in particular. Yeah. But if New York was always first – the nature of the campaign would be entirely different. Perhaps different people would get elected. Or if Florida was always first, you know, that would be an interesting idea. Why, why is it that one particular state should always be first? Well, the, by, by the way, the, the fact that they are small states mm-hmm. is better. I mean, I, as a guy who is in a state with like, you know, 9, 10 million people, in Iowa— Because you can meet everybody almost? And, and people actually have a real, can actually have a relationship with you. You know what it would be if California and New York were first? Fundraising, TV, right? You know okay. all, all the kind of things. Here, you have people with more money that lose all the time because voters get a chance to touch you, feel you, hear you, have you in their living room, meet you at the diner. So there's something to me. That's how I. That's how I came up in politics. We beat a machine in Newark by out organizing them, by having real connections in communities, so folks knew who I was. These first two primary states are about the size of my city. I got really excited when somebody broke down to me what it takes to win those first two primary states because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a retail guy. This is how I came up. I can do this. So I understand that this frustration in terms of maybe the, the, those two first two states don't have the diversity of the rest of America. But remember, they, they chose, Iowa chose the first black president of the United States. They did. And, and, and it wasn't until he won Iowa – that he started winning in the polls in, in just, South Carolina. I just wonder, you know, maybe what if we moved it around? What if, you know, South Carolina got to be first sometimes? What if, I mean, like the small state argument is valuable. Yes. 
But there's many small states. states. Mississippi. What if, yeah, what if, yeah, well, I don't want Mississippi to be first. What? <laughs> but, <laughs> Come on. But, I mean, you know, why, why not move it around some? And, and so I'm not going to argue against an equity argument at all. I'm simply going to say that those two states have a culture that's been built up over decades. That they really, there's some serious folks who take their responsibility. They actually they do. know. They and do. They take it very seriously. If you and shifted it to Brooklyn, people would be like, I don't know. And I've, <laughs> and I've been to Iowa and I've said, why should you be first? And they use, they say that like, we're small and we really care. Yes. And because we really come out to be part of the process, because they take the responsibility of being first very seriously. Yeah. Um, you talk about being a retail guy. You talk about winning over somebody who was predisposed to dislike you. How do you win over a specific individual, especially somebody who may not be used to talking to a tall black guy and they might have a little – like how do you win the is, – is the how you talk to them, how you touch them, how you – Well, first of all, and, listen. This is, and this is hard. Stop feeling like you're trying to win them over. For me, I, it, look, this is what I want from this primary. I want people just to know who I am. I want them to know the full, authentic spirit that I have. And if that's not what the Democratic primary electorate wants, I will end this knowing that I gave my the fullness and the truth of who I am, and I'm happy to support who, in fact, we all should commit to supporting whoever the nominee is. Now, I happen to think that my view of this whole election is the best view, and my experience unifying people for a common cause, creating new connections, coalitions, I, that being a chief executive of the state's largest city, being somebody in the Senate who can get things done, I feel like I can make a case. But if you, if you, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear, which I think is one of the worst things that politicians do. Mm-hmm. And and I know a lot of people do that. They wait to the, see what the poll says that people want, and then they then they shape that their their conversations with that. I've told my team already. I'm going to run on this idea that we need things like grace and civility and 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 and. and we need to beat darkness with light. And by the way, if people want to beat darkness with darkness, I'm happy. There's the, the 2020 election stand for not the year for the number of people running. You got 2,020 <laughs> people to choose from if you want somebody th- that's going to fight in that way. So for me, it's not trying to win people over. My goal is for people that just to know the truth of who I am and and argue sometimes. Like if you tell me that you don't think we should put a price on carbon, I'm like, well, we ain't going to solve the the climate change problem. Let me discuss this with you. And if you still don't agree with me. That's fine, but I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I feel that from you. I feel like he believes what he's saying, and I can trust him. That's something that, you know, I was a Hillary guy last time, but when I really plugged into Bernie, I was like, I believe everything that he says, and I believe he believes it, right? right? And I believe that about Barack, and I see that about you, that he believes what he's saying. He's not just saying the thing that was poll tested that he was supposed to say. Right. And, and, and that I, what I want from my politicians is that authenticity. That's why I think John McCain did so well yes. in his first campaign yes. and then did very badly in his second. Yeah. So I just think that th- this is the most liberating campaign I've had since I ran in 1998. 1998, I was running for city council person. People didn't give me a shot in hell. And I would just go to folks' doors and have some of the greatest conversations of my life and funny conversations sometimes. Uh, you know. And you, know, I, you learn to talk to folk. And I still remember I'm in this tough area of my, my community where I live now, and I'm knocking on doors. A woman opens the door and just starts yelling at me, what the fuck? 
you want, this, this, this. And, and I, I wanted to tell her what I wanted. So right away I said, you know what I want? I want us to deal with a problem that right here in your community. And I started yelling back at her. And before you know it, we're yelling, laughing, having a good time. So that was just me, you know, matching her sense of outrage with my sense of outrage. And, and I love that. You know, I, I, we knocked on thousands and thousands of doors in 1998 and laughing and telling truths and, and having hard conversations, painful conversations. And now I'm running for president. I'm doing the same thing. I'm running out there and letting people know what gets me animated. When I ran for, I said one of my proudest moments was when my, my campaign team told me, you're, going, you're, running, you're, not a, you're not a mayor anymore, Corey. You're running for the whole state. This is a suburban state. Don't stop talking about criminal justice reform everywhere you go. And I'm like, well, I'm like that's one of the reasons I'm running for president, <laughs> because I think we have a broken, morally bankrupt system that's corrupting our whole state, costing us billions of dollars, not to mention the untold cost of incarcerating people for doing things that the president of the United States admitted to doing. Mm -hmm. and, and you know what? People appreciated that I would stand in wealthy suburbs and, and talk about the moral bankruptcy of a criminal justice system and applauded that. And, and by the way, it was telling the truth because it's what I spent a lot of time working on. So I just I just think that our politics is is suffering from too much inauthentic, inauthenticity, mm -hmm. and we as a party are getting weak because I, I, I still remember these conversations like oh what are we going to do about the uh, person that's left the Democratic Party that did this no let's just start talking about what our values are as a party like get back to the core values of this party not about how we're going to chase down some voter. And, and, and pick a leader that can authentically talk from those values. And I promise you, you're going to build the coalitions you need to win. In July 2010, you're at a dinner with Mark Zuckerberg. A couple months later, he gives $100 million to the New York school system, which he had no relationship to. What would you say to Mark Zuckerberg to lead to this happening? Pass the ketchup? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, look... I mean, what's happened to public education in America is, and it's been going on for years in cities like mine, you know, which are walled. Of, I mean, literally laws were created to create poor minority communities. There are cities around Newark that have private investigators that follow black children around, see where they go home. Yep. And, and in fact, there was a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, education reporter for the Wall Street Journal that was one of those people that used a fake address in a surrounding suburb of Newark got caught, was forced to sign a confession before she could call her parents. I mean, just these kind of absurd things that go on. So I, I had the chance to talk to Mark about something I was passionate about. And he and I agreed that maybe we could do some real good. And here we are, you know, 10 plus years later, and now Newark, New Jersey is the number one school system in America for beat the odd schools, high poverty to high performance. Our graduation rate since then has gone up over 30%. If you're a black kid in Newark, which is the majority of our kids, your chance of now going to a high-performing school that beats the suburbs went up almost 400%. So it was one of those moments where we, I put a vision out. We had a conversation. We went, went to work, and it's now the results are in. It's Harvard did a recent study about our success. And Newark, we haven't solved all our problems. But our, one of the reasons why Newark's population is growing for the first time in 60 years is because people are moving back in for the schools. Mm. We started talking about... Uh, the kindness, the, the the shoveling people's driveways and the, the hunger strike and the rescuing somebody from a fire. What is the presidential equivalent of that? If you are fortunate enough to be elected, what sort of thing like that could you see yourself doing to, you know, the, the hand, get your hands dirty with the actual constituent sort of thing? Um, what, what would you do? 
Um, look, you and I are from, we are the innovators of hip hop. Well, that's the generation we're in. Yeah. And, and where creativity, where freestyling, where those things were used. And I used them when I was mayor, that creativity to find ways to challenge people's imagination, not just of what a mayor is, but of who they are and who we could be together. And so you can be, one thing is sure, that if I'm in the White House, the norms, they call it the gilded cage of people being in the White House all the time, and I'm going to flip that upside down and be showing up in places all around this country in order to make points often, but I am looking forward to reinventing and reimagining what the 21st century presidency has to be, especially taking over for a guy that was engaging in such moral vandalism yeah. that the next president has to be really creative in their healing and they're making people realize that you may be a farmer, I may be in a factory town, I may be in a city, but we have common cause in America. If I can have eight years where I can regain that those ideals of our country and, and, and revive that, as I called it, the more courageous empathy and that civic grace, we're going to be able to do things at a time that humanity needs us to do them. That healing that you talk about, though, is incredibly important because we are as violently divided as we have ever been, with the exception of times when we we're at actual civil war. I mean, we're at sort of at a civil cold war yeah. right now in this country. Yeah. The first thing the next president is going to have to do is to find a way to bring us back together. Not the first thing, the consistent thing. Yeah. Because, but how do you do that? Well, how I just want to tell you how... Especially when half of the country says media is lying to us, we cannot believe anything they say. So then anything that a President Booker says comes through a CNN, MSNBC, fake news. We don't have to believe that. But, how do we bring well, by the way, together? But those, those shows, their profit model, they're, they're complicit. Their profit model is to make us hate each other. Van Jones was telling me about this story when he and Newt Gingrich had crossfire. Mm. And they, too, decided that they were going to do the last segment calling it ceasefire. And the network stopped them because it went, ratings went down during ceasefire because mm. that's not as exciting as two people yelling at each other. So we have we have algorithms that if we get on YouTube, they're going to make a, bring us more and more towards the extreme again of hating each other. I, I can go through all of and of course our enemies. The, 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 but how do how do we? It, 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 I, the, it is rich the irony of Newt Gingrich being part of some kumbaya ceasefire. He is one of the architects of the current political uh, uh, environment that we have uh, that absolutely. is so angry absolutely. and at each other's throats. But how do you do it? And it's not a day one thing. It's a day 3,000 thing. And I, How do you do it? But I've already told you that this is a every day. If you are not using your creativity, your moral imagination, if you're not willing to break norms to make this a purpose, then you are going to have a presidency where you do not get big things done. And so one of the – I mean my book literally is entitled United. This is years before I was running – the, one of the purposes that I am in this race is that I have confidence that I am the best qualified to be a healer, to be someone who revives that civic grace. And, and, and if, you, if you're supporting me, know that that's why I'm getting into it. I'm going to fight like uh, – you're going to see a person that is going to take Trump out. Um, um, but then at the same time, do it in a way that doesn't triangulate or pit us against each other. Do it in a way that we can create those new American majorities. And, and I'm not going to say everything, because trust me, I sit and think about this all the time, about how savage the divides are getting in our country. And, and, and I think about this because I noticed this when I played football in high school. 
that if I was driving on a team on offense and I heard that opposing huddle arguing amongst themselves, taking each, I'm, I, I would say to my team, we got we're going to score a touchdown. Yeah. And so we are in a global competition right now, which folk don't get, that there is really two main fights going on on the planet. One main fight between two groups, democracies and authoritarian governments. Mm-hmm. And by the way, look where Turkey's going. Look where Hungary's going. It's getting tough. The competition's getting fierce out there. Mm-hmm. I was flying with Jeff Flake, Republican senator from Arizona at that time, going to Zimbabwe to talk to Emin Gagwa, who was the leader that took over after the coup. I put that in quotes. Uh, but that the got rid of Mugabe to tell him that he needs to have free and fair elections. A bipartisan delegation of senators communicate this message. Emengagwa, Emerson Emengagwa is flying in from China. Guess what China told them? We don't care what you do with your elections. We got you. We want to be, we just want your extractive minerals. Mm. And so we have a real contest. But remember, in China, massive human rights violations, massive oppressions of their people. Look what they're trying to do in Hong Kong. Look what they're trying to do. I go through the groups that they're oppressing in their own country. And so where is humanity going? And where is America going to be? We have a president right now that seems to think that we can pull away from all the other democracies. In fact, he's yep. got better relationships with Putin and, and Duterte than he does with Merkel, May, or Macron. And, and so we, I see us having an obligation to, to show that we, number one, can get our own act together, that the enemy that we need to deal with is the divisions that we have, because as much as we might want to say that so-and-so is a... a, a evil in our the reality is is hey china just built 18,000 miles of high speed rail the busiest rail quarter in in america is the northeast quarter that goes through new york new jersey i'm not joking it yep. runs half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s wow other countries we used to be the best educators on the planet earth we're no longer k through 12 we don't even have the highest percentage of people graduating from college in our country like we used to but guess what other countries believe in something really radical that we don't science that they saw that the brain develops most between the second, third trimester, the third or fourth year. Mm -hmm. So I think something like 80% of brain development. And so you know what they have? Something really radical, universal prenatal care. Mm. We don't. We lead developed nations in infant mortality, maternal mortality. They have universal preschool. I can show you the data that shows dollars invested in preschool produce multiples in return for for our nation in terms of the productivity of that child. They have paid family leave. The Afghan Afghanistan and the Congo have paid family leave. We don't. Nothing I said there from infrastructure to education. These aren't partisan issues. Now I think the Republicans have a terribly wrong view, but remember Eisenhower did the the biggest infrastructure bill we've seen a trillion dollars in today's day and age. We must get back into the competition on the globe and win. China's top 10% of their high school graduates, if I have my numbers right, they're, they're elite of the elite, total more in number than all of our high school kids. Other countries now, we used to have the most R&D intensive economy, the meaning the percentage of our GDP that we invest in innovation and research. We're celebrating going to the moon. Well, that helped with satellite navigation. All the things that we are enjoying, creating the industries, the jobs where we dominate the planet, we're now being out-invested in the future technologies because we can't even agree on doubling down on investments in the NIH. We need a leader in this country urgently now that can get us to heal, to recognize our common cause, that can put a little more indivisible into this one nation under God and inspire us again to see that common cause because we are losing ground. We could, You and I 
as great as I think our generation is, we could be the first generation to do worse than our parents. Yeah. Economically, 95% of baby boomers did better than their parents. For millennials, it's a toy cost. Life expectancy is going down. We now have deaths of despair from suicides to opioid addiction. My father said something that, that haunts me and motivates me every day before he died. It was a shooting in my neighborhood. I was living in the projects in Newark. And he says to me, son, I worry that a kid born just like me. My dad was born in the Jim Crow, North Carolina, to a single mom, poor. He would get in my face and say, don't tell people I was poor. Tell them the truth. I was just po, P-O. Couldn't afford the other two letters. <laughs> my dad was poor, black, single mom, segregated community. He says to me hauntingly, I worry, Corey, that a kid born just like me today majority of my kids in Newark are born poor to a single mom, segregated community. I told you the de laws, facto, yeah. de facto segregation. Yeah. He goes, I worry that they'd have a better chance of making it if they were born in 1936 when I was born than being born today. And I'm a data guy. And on some of the data, my dad's wrong, but some of the data, mass incarceration, uh, murder, I mean, we see lead poisoning, 3,000 jurisdictions in America where the children have more than twice the blood lead levels you know, in Flint, Michigan. I always think about when you know, they say, you know, America's the greatest country in the world. Well, maybe it is, but is America the greatest country it could be? It yeah. is not. No, and so where are we going? Will we go further into whoever the president is, next president, will we go further into tribalism or will that next presidency is their solemn obligation to resurrect that ideal of sacred honor, yeah. uh, pledging to each other our lives or fortune? Will that next president be a creative artist of activism, willing to shun norms and make their purpose, not just getting big legislation passed, but doing what is a precondition to getting big legislation passed, which is helping more people understand that we have to come together in common cause in order to do that in the first place. The corporations, the media, are, I can go through the people that are invested in tearing us apart. The soul of our nation right now is at stake, and we need to resurrect that spirit and save this country from go slipping into mediocrity or slipping into what's even worse, uh, uh, to tearing itself apart. Thanks to the senator for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torrey and on Instagram at Torrey Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It helps, and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing person because the man can't shut us down.